Last summer in uh, Philadelphia, <clears throat> Pennsylvania, uh, there was a color guard ceremony that took place uh, right at Liberty Hall to commission a man by the name of James uh, Edward, uh, John Edward James Jr. And the reason why the commissioning was unique is because the soldier uh, was 98 years old. Uh, it turns out that James uh, is an African-American who was drafted into the Army uh, in 1942 to serve after World War II, serve in World War II after Pearl Harbor. Um, and of course, he decided he would try his hand uh, at officer training uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia. Well, he finished the uh, training, but the day before he was to receive his commission, uh, he was called in by his superior office into uh, his office, by superior officer into the office. And it turns out that he wasn't going to get his commission after all. And as a matter of fact, he was set to be transferred. You see, during World War II, uh, it wasn't uncommon for an African-American soldier to be denied the offer of a commission uh, if they were going to be uh, assigned to a predominantly white unit. Uh, at the time, it was actually against Army regulations uh, for white soldiers to be subordinate to black soldiers. So the commission in Philly last summer was there to sort of correct this long-standing wrong uh, that was there at the heart of the U.S. military. But, but as I read about it, it brought to mind something that I kind of found interesting and that is the difference between a commissioned and a non-commissioned personnel in our military. Um, uh, when you go through officer training school, you, you, you become eligible to receive an official commission, uh, which means that you serve uh, at the pleasure of the president alone. Uh, he is the one who gives you your marching orders and only him. I actually was able to dig up an old book called The Soldier in the State, written by Samuel Huntington back in the 1950s. Uh, where he talks about the fact that the, the military commission is special because it creates this unique sort of accountability structure between the soldier and between his leadership. Um, he says this in his book. He says, The commission binds the officer to the state to serve lawfully and defend the Constitution, but also the state's executive officer to the soldier, making him a direct extension of the executive's uh, constitutional power. The commission, this is what he finished with, the commission means a shared sense of organic unity and the consciousness of being in a group. Hmm. Now, why did I find that interesting? Well, because we've arrived this morning at literally the seam of the book of Exodus. The whole book is divided into two parts at this chapter, because what's come before uh, is God getting people ready to understand what it means to be a people. Uh, and what will follow are the repercussions of what he's done and what that meant. And centering it all is this idea that the Bible has been talking about from the very beginning, that man longs to be in the presence of God, so much so that he was created to live in the presence of God. But in the Garden of Eden, even though man mankind lived in joy and fellowship with him, uh, with the breaking of the law, they were cast out away from God's presence. And so the whole message of the book of Exodus is that the only way back into the presence of God that we were built to, to understand is if he orchestrates a rescue opportunity. Uh, and this we have learned this entire semester. But that salvation sets us up for the next question. And that is, well, what's the purpose of all this? What then is the direction of my life having been rescued? And Exodus 19 grounds that answer in everything that's come before and everything that's going to come after. And you can sum it up this way. Exodus 19 
is God's commission to Israel. And my premise is this, there really is no better place in the Old Testament to sort of get a description of what the people of God are commissioned to do and to be than right here. And if our military friends are correct about the power of commissions in general, then we should expect that there might come from this as we, as we embrace it, as we understand it, as we work hard to figure out how it means to live it out, that there will be a sense of organic unity among us, a sense of knowing what we're about as a people. In other words, I don't think the people of God can have any reasonable hope to stay together as a people without a sense of shared vision for what God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. So what is that commission? I've got three sort of aspects to it that you've got written there in your bulletin. Number one, to be a treasured possession. Number two, to live as a kingdom of priests. And number three, to look to the mediator. Number one, to be a treasured possession. Look, I want to begin by the simple idea that Christianity is completely set apart from every other world religion by a simple uh, sequential order, let's call it. And I'll pose it to you as a question. Which is it? Do I keep the law of God so that I may be accepted by God? Or do I keep the law of God because I have been accepted by him? It's as basic as that. Does God accept me because I have obeyed the law? Or does he accept me on the basis of his pure grace and on the basis of that acceptance call me to live a different life? Because again, it may not appear to you as such, but these are utterly divergent approaches to the question of where obedience fits into religious life. Look, verses 4 and 5 are actually very carefully worded. Take a look at those. God is basically saying in verse 4, I have released you. I have rescued you. I have brought you to myself like on eagle's wings. Now, verse 5, I want you to obey me. Alec Motier says, It was not, therefore, that they were ordered to obey in order that they might enter the covenant, but that already being within the covenant, they were called to obey so that they might enjoy the benefits and the privileges of being God's people. In other words, it doesn't relate to covenant status, but to covenant enjoyment. <laughs> Look, this is where Christianity gets different from every single other world religion. Because in every other world system, it is your doing that establishes your being. The way you act that establishes your identity. But in Christianity, it's just the opposite. It is your being that becomes the ground for what you are asked to do. Christianity teaches that God, by His grace, constitutes a brand new relationship with you. He rescues you from your Egyptian tormentors. He leads you through the Red Sea. Only then does He show you what a life that looks like is consistent with that rescue. Look, so Moses is describing a situation, which is really foreign to us, isn't it? To where obedience to Yahweh is a joy, is actually enjoyable. But let's be honest, do you ever associate the idea of obedience with part of your enjoyment? Um, you know, in other patterns, you have sort of this, in other religions, you have this pattern of religious denial that you are careful to sort of walk through and be careful. But there's always this threat it's kind of hanging over you, right? The second that you step on the outs of it, you're messed up. That is not the pattern that Moses establishes here. Instead, what we find is that when we live in obedience, we become God's treasured possession. That's one of those that's worth underlining or highlighting. 
The, 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 the treasured possession is the translation of one Hebrew word uh, that refers uh, to, to a king's sort of private wealth. Obviously, if you were a king in that particular culture, you owned everything. Uh, but there were certain objects that you had that, were, that, were, that just meant more to you than others. And God is saying, that's you. That's you. I own the cattle of a thousand hills, but you, you are special. And I realize that it might sound strange to us that God's people are ordered to live as a treasured possession. <laughs> that might sound strange as part of our commission. But I'm telling you, I feel like this is one of the hardest things to pound into the human heart. It certainly is true for mine. But I'm also convinced that it's like the heartbeat of Christianity. I mean, look how sentimental is this passage in verse 4, where he says, How I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I mean, that's the image of a mother bird carrying her tender little, little chicks on her wings into, uh, into, into safety. It's a very tender image. M- Motir again says this, The picture is plain. Nestlings must not be allowed to remain nestlings. And if their growth to maturity demands leaving the nest, then the parent bird will simply drive it out. But in doing, the wings of the parent become a safety net for the first feeble attempts of the nestlings to fly. That's the image. (laughs) And look, I don't know that there was ever anything more revolutionary for me than all of a sudden for someone to introduce to me, Les, I don't think that you really believe believe that he loves you. I think that's where you're stumbling. That's the hardest thing that's getting inside your head. But, you know, bit by microscopic bit, once it does, it's the only thing that creates the possibility of change. Let me give a couple of illustrations, see if I can unpack this. I want you to imagine for a moment that I have a 10-foot long 2 by 4 and I lay it here up front uh, on the floor, and I ask you to come up and to walk across it. My guess is the majority of you here in this room would trot across it without any real problem, right? But let's say I take that same 2 by 4 and I hoist it up about 100 feet off the ground. My guess is a lot of us would have a hard time sort of getting across that and find it much more daunting. Why? Well, because in the first case, you got nothing to lose. If you fall off, you step off of what? Two inches down to the floor. But in the second situation, you got everything to lose. So, so how do you describe your security in Christ? When I was in college, I had a friend of mine who said, Les, every time you talk about your salvation... And, and Jesus being the rock of your salvation, I picture your rock as being like a, a stone that's about yay big around and about 100 feet off the ground. Just this big, so that one slight little step off to one side or the other will mean your absolute destruction. He said, but here's my question for you, Les. What if the rock of our salvation is as long and as wide and as vast as a continent? How different would your life be? How different would it be if you believe that God had actually won for you that kind of safety? Look, the old hymn writer put it great when he talked about our new relationship to the law. Run, run and do the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's the difference. Okay, so how do we apply this before we go to the next point? There's lots of ways you can apply it, but the one for our purposes this morning When the people of God gather together for worship, I don't know what associations you have with that, but it's the intention of the leadership of this church that your presence here this morning is so that we can rehearse what it means to be a treasured possession. Because you forgot. And so did I. 
And that's what worship is. It is to ascribe worth, (laughs) to express joy in something being true, in the hopes that maybe this time, maybe one more time, it'll sink in deeper. And that maybe I'll be convinced longer this time. I realize that coming to church and, and worship services, and do we stand up or sit down now? They feel just like motions. But the intention is to create a is to create a habit of your soul where things are being gone through so that there's a day of refreshment and of reminding and of joy. And if Exodus 19 is to be believed, that actually will create a catalyst for real life change. Being his treasured possession is the foundation for our commission as Christians. So that's first. Secondly, though, We're called, we see, to live as a kingdom of priests. Verse 6 is really the heart of the whole commission. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Take those two concepts, holiness and kingdom of priests. First of all, most of the time when we hear the word holiness, I've said this before, we think of moral purity, which is absolutely the case. But it's actually far more than that. To To be holy in the Old Testament's eyes is to be set apart, to, to be distinct and distinguished from so that you can accomplish something. What exactly, of course, is that? Well, the answer is so that we could be a collection, a nation that is full of priests. Okay, so for a second, let's remind ourselves of what the priests were. And you can discover it, I think, by, by contrasting it with what a prophet did. Okay, A prophet in the Old Testament was one who came to represent God to the people. He came as God's representative to people. But a priest is actually just the opposite. A priest comes to represent the people to God. In other words, he's a go-between. He, 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 a priest is one who stands in the gap between God and man to present people who otherwise would not be worthy as a path to find worthiness before God. That's what a priest did. <laughs> and so all of a sudden we get this sort of commission that God gives. Oh, and by the way, later on in the book of Leviticus, right after uh, uh, the book of Exodus finishes, we actually find that priests were called to care for people as well. They had responsibility for public health issues, for, for hygiene that existed among the camp. In short, the priests were like the caretakers of God's people as they met with God. Of course, Christians have always understood, of course, that Jesus is our ultimate high priest, because he sacrificed his life for his people. He was the go-between between between us and God. And so this kingdom of priests, we find is actually going to be God's means by which he brings about his big mission, his great mission for the world. Uh, One commentator says this, as holy and priestly, Israel is the means by which God will, as his plan unfolds more and more, bring the nations to have knowledge of him. And so what what does it mean? It means that the people of of God are called to be little Jesuses. (laughs) Doing what? Well, by doing what he did. By by healing the sick. By feeding the hungry. By releasing prisoners, both spiritual and physical. Granted, Jesus did this with sort of wonder-working miraculous power that I don't think we have absolute access to in our day. But it does mean sort of, he did promise us that we would do greater works than his, It doesn't mean more eye-popping sort of special effects, I think. But actually that we would be the ones to advance his kingdom. So that one day when the master of the house returns, he'll come and see how his servants did at extending his lordship. But here's the point. The best result of being holy is not just to get yourself fixed. 
or to kind of work through your own little neuroses, even though it's just that. But rather to sort of be a display to the world of the value of knowing God. You know, there are international implications for being God's people. It is our role to bring the manufacturer's design to the world and show them that we just kind of do things differently in this place. You know, here we engage in activities and we encourage one another to to, to do things that bring life and don't destroy it. Um, Here we work to forgive people in the way in which we've been forgiven. Here we work to be present in people's lives, not to live them out and hide in isolation. Here we want to put sin to death and not sort of relish it. Here we're here to sort of take dead things and try to breathe new life in them, whether it's our work or our family or our neighborhoods. And so therefore there is a burden on every generation of God's people to consider this question of how we are going to be a kingdom of priests in Oxford, Mississippi. It reminded me of a little uh, turn of phrase that uh, Tim Keller does where he says, we live in a day where people are promiscuous with their sex, uh, but they're, uh, they're stingy with their money. But he says, a Christian actually does just the opposite. <laughs> a Christian is promiscuous with their money. They give it away in spades. We, we don't store treasures up here on earth. We do in heaven. And we use that to take care of the of the poor. We, we adopt children who have no homes. That, that's what we do. But vice versa, we're actually stingy with our sex, though. That is, we see the sex act as being deeply sacred and holy, intended not for mere individual pleasure, but to speak about heavenly eternal truths. We don't make crude jokes about it, what, the, uh, what our study in Ephesians this spring will refer to as, as coarse jesting. Why? Because it's something that's serious, and it's there to sort of be a blessing to other people who make those serious promises. So there's a distinction in the way in which a Christian runs its community. This came home to me a number of years ago, and we had a young lady who was involved in the ministry that I was working with on campus, RUF, uh, who was killed by a drunk driver on her way home from uh, RUF one particular evening. Um, And as we all were sort of working through uh, the the devastation of that, um, that season, uh, over and over again, the college students were trying to make it clear that both the family and the boyfriend who had been dating Laura uh, forgave the guy who was driving the car uh, who killed her. And it was amazing to hear the pushback that we got from people about that forgiveness. I just don't think that's wise. Do you guys really need to be telling people that you like forgive that guy? Because if you don't, the judge is going to go too easy on him if you're not careful. And quite honestly, I don't know, maybe the judge did. But it didn't matter. Because what these students were thinking about was, how are we going to be distinctive in the way that we approach this tragedy? We see how the world does it, but what will be different about the way in which we sort of process that? And I think as the years went by, we began to see how God brought about a healing among our community and among those students in that whole process. Reminds me of a book I read years ago called The Sunflower, which was written by a former uh, Jewish Holocaust survivor. Uh, who had witnessed this horrific, something I wouldn't even speak up here from the pulpit, uh, savage injustice against a group of his people. Well, as the story goes, he found himself years later face to face with one of the German soldiers who had committed the atrocity, who was in a hospital uh, dying of uh, severe burn wounds. Well, as the man lays dying on his bed, he looks up at this Jewish person 
And he tells him what he did. And he says, is there any way that you could forgive me for what I did? Can you forgive me? And so that's halfway through the book. And what the guy who wrote the book says in the middle of it, so let me ask you, dear reader, what should I have done? How should I have handled this person's request that I forgive him on behalf of this horrible injustice that he committed? And it's fascinating to read the, the last half of the book are just the responses from different generations. And if you read it, you'll be shocked how often that it's only the Christians that have any notion on the inside of being like, yeah, I think you ought to try to forgive. You ought to find some way through that. Why? It's distinctive. Look, every Christian in this city has got to ask themselves a question. Is there any difference in the flavor of this community versus the way in which sin drags our world into all kinds of things? What is our distinctiveness? And unfortunately, whenever these conversations come up, the conversation tends to devolve to the silliest things. I think you're right, Les, and I've been so concerned about the fact that I see Christians going to R-rated movies all the time. Or whether or not we drank alcohol at a party, or whether or not we had faithful quiet times every day. And I'm not saying the Bible doesn't speak to those issues. All kinds of places. But there are so many weightier matters of the law that come in and preach to us about looking and not getting distracted by peccadillos and saying, what does it mean for Christ's prayers to be a kingdom of priests to this city? What does it look like for us to be the stand-ins for the lost in this community before God? What does that mean? How do we strategize as good priests and to our neighbors to bring healing balm to broken and hurting people? How do, we, how do we get a vision for what it might look like for Oxford, Mississippi to be a city set on a hill? And I'm not talking about game weekends. <laughs> a kingdom of priests. By the way, we're going to do a deep dive, if the Lord wills, next fall and spring of 21 on that very question. So stay tuned. But let me finish with this. The thi- final part of this commission is that we are to look to the mediator. Look, the rest of this chapter is very easily summed up by saying, by God saying to his people, look, I know you think you think, they think that you know uh, what it's going to be like to relate to me. You don't, okay? And there's this interesting contradiction that we get that comes in over and over again. Because God is saying, I want you to be my treasured possession. But as soon as he sees him, they're all scared to death of him. How do you put those together? Every commentator talks about how naive verse 8 really was. Did you read that and giggle a little bit? Uh, obedience to everything you command? Got it. Done. What's next? <laughs> And it's as if God kind of shakes his hands like, no, no, no. Uh, Moses, please go tell the people to prepare to come and meet me so they can see exactly what it's going to be like. And then 16 through 19 that we didn't have time to read unleashes what happened because there's this loud trumpet sound that comes that, that keeps getting louder and louder and louder until everyone's absolutely and utterly terrified. What's the point? God is saying, I need for you to know that the only reason why you are ever going to stand before me is because of Moses. There is no simple act of your will that's going to bring you in my presence. Zero. Not at all. You have to have a go-between. And of course, they get the message. (laughs) We we actually, next year, are going to deal with Exodus chapter 20 a lot. But in verse 18 and 19 over there, the people's reaction, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak for us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak for us lest we die. Now you got it. (laughs) Now you understand the deal of this relationship. 
Look, and this is the reason why it's so important that so many years later, Jesus is up on top of Mount Hermon, isn't he? And he's standing up and he's talking to his people. And suddenly, while he's up there, he transforms and shows his heavenly glory. And there is Moses again, talking about his exodus. What's the point? God is telling his people, without Moses, there is no hope of even starting properly with the law. And without Jesus, every effort that you make to be obedient is going to fail. So where does that leave us? Well, I think there's two things that I would end with. Two different people I want to speak to. Because on the one hand, I do think there's probably people in this room who are realizing to themselves that, you know, I'm just not holy. I'm at a stage in my life where I feel like I've been working at this forever, and I just don't see any progress. And I get that. I get that. But I can also say that it's possible that for some of us, that one of the reasons why this is such a bitter struggle is that as we've approached the mountain of God's holiness, we're constantly being tempted to do so in our own terms. You, you ever bowed your head to pray and kind of done a little mental quick checklist of how well you did that week to see whether you're able to pray? That's what I'm talking about. What am I standing on? Why am I here? For every Christian, there's a regular reminder that says, I'm not even breathing if it's not for his grace. That's the message. But I think there could be a second person in this room, and I want to speak to them more specifically now. And that is there comes a moment when you begin to listen and realize, and it's every single passage we've looked at in Exodus, that there must be a mediator. Well, you've realized that Jesus has just kind of been a vaguely inconvenient appendage to whatever I think about my life as being spiritually. And you begin to realize that there's a much more fundamental problem with your approach to God that's far more serious than your inability to keep the law. Jesus, I think, is obviously often confusing for people. And the sum effect is, is that you just feel lost. And I do think there's a worthwhile question of asking of like, how's all that working out for you? All that willpower and self-determination? What's it wrought in your life? How's it taken its toll mentally and spiritually and physically and emotionally? Because it may be that you need something, and maybe even something for the first time. And that's to be carried away on eagles' wings. And that little notion reminded me of the fact that it's been far too long since we've had a Lord of the Rings illustration. <laughs> Remedy that right now. You know, at the very end of their great journey to destroy the Ring of Power, you got little Frodo and Sam dying on the side of the rapidly exploding Mount Doom. And the one last thing that they see before they fall out unconscious are the eagles. The great eagle Guahir looks down on their pitiful estate, and Tolkien says this. And so it was that Guahir saw them with his keen, far-seeing eyes. Two small, dark figures, forlorn, hand in hand upon a little hill, while the world shook underneath them, and gasped as rivers of fire drew near. And even as he spied them and came swooping down, he saw them fall, worn out, or choking with fumes and heat stricken down by despair at last, hiding their eyes from their own deaths. Side by side, there they lay, and down swept Guahir. And as if in a dream, not knowing what had befallen them, the wanderers were lifted up and borne away out of the darkness and out of the fire. Here's the point. Every Christian can relate to a moment in their life where they felt just like those two little figures as if the life was sort of coming out of me, that I've looked at the demands of the law and it's crushing me 
and it's, and it's bringing me through to utter and complete despair. And at that very moment when it feels like they're going to fall, there's suddenly this imagery that God brings where he scoops people up at the moment of that lostness and brings them tenderly into, to meet the fearsome God. So you know, I, for you, I think there's a choice this morning. <laughs> you know, are you going to lay there and waste on the side of the mountain? Or maybe perhaps even this morning for the first time, will you accept a commission from the great commander of the armies of the, hev- of the heavenly host that Jesus would come and bring you to join this kingdom of priests? to participate in bringing about the new heavens and the new earth. Wouldn't that be great? And it's something that you can consider to be an invitation for you this morning. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace that we need to be able to see in that way because we can't and we don't. Father, the truth is if we take a measure of our own hearts, we, we fall up so short of what your law asks us, of even being a kingdom of priests. Father, what a mess we often are so wrapped up in our own independent issues that we don't see what you've called us to do. Forgive us, Father. Be gracious to it, to us. Would you this morning, for even the souls, Father, who've never known you, swoop down as the great eagle and bear us up and bring us, Father, to the completion of your kingdom. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.